friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. We're about to start the fifth story on the sixth day, which is all about tricks wives play on their husbands to deceive them, and mostly is about wives cheating on their husbands and managing to get away with it in various humorous ways. Thus, Loretta brought her tale to an end, and after everyone had commended the lady for treating her reprobate husband as he deserved, the king, not wanting to waste any time, turned to Fiametta, and graciously entrusted her with the telling of the next story, and she therefore began as follows. Illustrious ladies, I too am prompted, after listening to the previous tale, to tell you about a jealous husband, for in my estimation they deserve all the suffering their wives may inflict upon them, especially when they are jealous without reason. And if the lawgivers had taken all things into account, I consider that in this respect the punishment they prescribe for wives should have been no different from that which they prescribe for the person who attacks another in self-defence. For no young wife is safe against the machinations of a jealous husband, who will stop at nothing to destroy her. After being cooped up for the whole week looking after the house and the family, like everyone else she yearns on Sundays for peace and comfort, and wants to enjoy herself a little, just as farm labourers do, or workers in the towns, or the magistrates on the bench, just as God did, in fact, when on the seventh day he rested from his labours. And indeed, it is laid down in both canon and civil law, which aim to promote the glory of God and the common good of the people, that working days should be distinguished from days of rest. But jealous husbands will have none of this. On the contrary, when other women are enjoying their day of rest, their own wives are more wretched and miserable than ever, for they are kept more securely under lock and key, and only those poor creatures who have had to put up with this sort of treatment can describe how exhausting it all is. To sum up, therefore, no matter what a wife may do to a husband who is jealous without cause, she is surely to be commended rather than condemned. But turning now to the story, there once lived in Romini a very rich merchant and landowner, who, having married an exceedingly beautiful woman, became inordinately jealous of her. He had no other reason for this except that, because he loved her a great deal and thought her very beautiful, and knew that she did everything she could to please him, he concluded that every other man must feel the same about her, and also that she would take just as much trouble to please other men as she did in pleasing her husband. And in his jealousy he kept such a constant watch upon her and guarded her so closely, that I doubt whether many of those condemned to death are guarded by their jailers with the same degree of vigilance. It wasn't just a question of her not being able to attend a party or a wedding, or go to church, or step outside her door for a single moment, he wouldn't even allow her to stand at the window or cast so much as a solitary glance outside the house. Her life thus became a complete misery, and her suffering was all the more difficult to bear in that she had done nothing to deserve it. For her own amusement, finding herself persecuted so unfairly by her husband, the lady cast about her to see whether she could find any way of supplying him with a just and proper motive for his jealousy. Not being allowed to stand at the window, she was unable to offer signs of encouragement to any potential suitor who might be passing her way. But knowing there was a handsome and agreeable young man in the house next door, she calculated that if she could find a crack in the wall separating their two houses, she could keep on peering through it until an opportunity arose of speaking to the youth and offering him her love if he was prepared to accept it, after which, provided they could find some way of doing it, they could come together once in a while and in this way she could keep her body and soul together until her husband came to his senses. So, I've got to say, from a modern perspective, this is not a dismissible amount of misery for a wife to be in, let's say. 
not a dismissible amount of controlling behaviour by the husband? Ah, uh, unfortunately that's a bit of a cultural difference and specifically, the thing is that jealous husbands are a narrative trope in the Middle Ages. It's, it's such a big thing, the idea of these husbands who put in enormous amount of effort to prevent their wives having the opportunities to cheat on them. And it's difficult to judge how realistic this was, but it certainly is a believable type of behaviour for people writing and telling these stories in the Middle Ages. There are women who have more or less freedom than others, depending on their duties and their, their work and their role. When women were employed, they're often employed like the spinners we've heard about in other stories in that they were paid money for the work that they were doing at their home, but they could also be employed as, as maids or as, as cooks and all of these other characters that we've seen. And obviously for women in those sorts of roles, this kind of control is just not possible. While jealous husbands are absolutely something that are, that are talked about for lower-class women as well as higher-class women, the obsessive restriction of the wife to the home seems to be more of a middly, upper-class sort of thing. I can't speak with authority on this subject. We are going to keep encountering the jealous, controlling husband, and he is going to keep being mocked and worked around but not censured by other people in his society as doing something that's wrong. It's an unfortunate social reality of the setting of these tales. So with that depressing digression, let's continue. When her husband was not at home, she went from room to room carefully inspecting the wall until eventually, in a very remote part of the house, she came across a place where it was cracked. She peered through to the other side, and although she could not make very much out, she could see enough to realise that it was a bedroom, and she said to herself, if this turned out to be the bedroom of Filippo, the name of the youth next door, there wouldn't be much left for me to do. She got one of her maidservants, who was feeling rather sorry for her, to keep watch whenever there was nobody about and discovered that it was indeed the young man's bedroom, and that he slept there all by himself. By paying regular visits to the crack in the wall, and dropping tiny pieces of stone and straw through the opening whenever she could hear the young man on the other side, she eventually succeeded in getting him to come and investigate. Then she called to him in a low whisper, and the young man, recognising her voice, replied, whereupon, since there was no likelihood of her being disturbed, she briefly told him what she had in mind. Overjoyed, the young man proceeded to widen the hole on his own side of the wall, which he did in such a way that nobody would notice, and from then on they would very often talk to each other there and touch one another's hands, but it was impossible to do more on account of the strict watch maintained by the jealous husband. Now, seeing that Christmas was approaching, the lady told her husband that she would like, with his permission, to attend church on Christmas morning and go to confession and holy communion like any other Christian. And what sins have you committed, said the jealous husband, that you want to go to confession? Oh, really, she exclaimed, do you think I'm a saint just because you keep me locked up? 
You know very well that I have my sins, just as other people do, but I'm not going to reveal them to you because you're not a priest. Her words made the husband suspicious, and he decided to try and find out what these sins were. So he granted her request, but told her that she could only go to their own chapel, and not to any of the other churches. Moreover, she was to go there early in the morning, and be confessed either by their own chaplain or by the priest whom the chaplain allotted to her, and not by anybody else, after which she was to come straight back to the house. The lady had a shrewd suspicion that it was some sort of trap, but asked no questions and replied that she would do as he wished. On the morning of Christmas Day, the lady got up at dawn, and as soon as she was neatly dressed she went to the church her husband had specified. Meanwhile, he too had risen and made his way to the same church, arriving there before she did. And having explained to the chaplain what he was proposing to do, he disguised himself in the robes of a priest with a large hood that came down over his cheeks, like the ones that are often worn by priests. This he pulled forward a little, so as to conceal his features. Then he seated himself in one of the pews. On arriving at the church, the lady asked to speak to the chaplain. So the chaplain came, and when she told him that she wanted to be confessed, he said he was too busy, but would send one of his fellow priests. He then went away, and sent the jealous husband, unfortunately for him, to hear her confession. The husband walked solemnly up to her, and although the light was not very good and he had pulled the hood well down over his eyes, she knew immediately who it was and said to herself, God be praised, the fellow's turned from a jealous husband into a priest, but never mind, I'll see that he gets what he's looking for. Pretending not to recognise him, she seated herself at his feet. Which is the standard confession thing, like they didn't have confession booths at this point. Master Jealous had stuffed a few bits of gravel in his mouth so as to impede his speech and prevent his wife from recognising his voice, and he thought that his disguise was so perfect in all other respects that she was bound to be taken in by it. But to come now to the confession, among the things which the lady told him, having first of all pointed out that she was married, was that she had fallen in love with a priest, who came to her every night and slept with her. When he heard this, the jealous husband felt as though a knife had been driven into his heart, but for the fact that he was eager to know more about it, he would have abandoned the confession there and then and taken himself off. However, he stood his ground and said to her, "'What's this I hear? Doesn't your husband sleep with you?' "'Oh, yes, father,' she replied. "'In that case,' said the husband, "'how can the priest sleep with you as well?' "'Father,' said the lady, "'it's a mystery to me how the priest manages to do it, "'but there isn't a door in the house that is so securely locked "'that it doesn't spring open the moment he touches it. "'He tells me that before opening the door of my bedroom, "'he recites a certain formula that sends my husband straight off to sleep, "'and as soon as he hears him snoring, "'he opens the door, comes into the bedroom, and lies down at my side. "'And the system never fails.' Madam, he says, this is an evil business, and you must put a stop to it at all costs. Father, said the lady, I don't think I could ever do that, for I love him too dearly. Then I cannot give you absolution, he said. I am sorry about that, said the lady, but I didn't come here to tell lies, and if I thought I could do as you are asking, I should tell you so. I am truly sorry for you, madam, he said, for I see that your soul will be lost if this is allowed to continue but I will do you a favour and go to the trouble of saying certain special prayers to God on your behalf, which may possibly assist you. I shall send one of my seminarists to call on you, and you are to tell him whether or not my prayers have had any effect, and if they achieve their object, we can go on from there. Oh, father, she said, don't send anyone to the house, because if my husband were to hear about it, he is so madly jealous that nothing in the world could dissuade him from believing that some great evil was afoot, and he'd be impossible to live with for a whole year. Don't worry about that, he said, 
for I shall make sure that everything is so discreetly arranged that you won't hear a word out of him. If you can manage to do that, said the lady, then I have no objection. And after reciting the confiteor and receiving her penance, she got up from where she was kneeling at his feet and went off to listen to the mass. Fuming with rage, the luckless husband went away, abandoned his priestly disguise, and returned home, determined to find a way of catching this priest and his wife together, so that he could bring the pair of them to book. When his wife came back from the church, she saw from the expression on her husband's face that she had spoiled his Christmas for him, but he tried as best as he could to conceal what he had done and what he thought he had discovered. After breakfast, having made up his mind to spend the following night lying in wait near the front door to see whether the priest would turn up, he said to his wife, I have to go out to supper this evening, and I won't be back till the morning, so take good care to lock the front door, the landing door, and the bedroom door, and go to bed when you feel like it. Very well, said the lady. As soon as she had the chance, she went to the hole in the wall and gave the usual signal, which Filippo no sooner heard than he came to the spot. She then gave him an account of what she had done that morning, and told him what her husband had said to her after breakfast. Then she said, I'm certain he won't leave the house. He's just going to keep watch at the front door. So climb up on the roof tonight, and find your way in here so that we can be together. The young man was delighted with this turn of events, and said, My lady, leave everything to me. As soon as it was dark, the jealous husband crept into hiding, armed to the teeth, in one of the rooms on the ground floor. And his wife, having locked all the doors, in particular the one on the landing so that her husband could not come up, bided her time in her room. When the coast was clear, the young man picked his way carefully over the roof from his own room to hers, and they got into bed, where they had a blissful time and a merry one together until dawn next morning, when he returned to his own house. The husband, supperless, aching all over, and freezing to death, waited practically the whole night beside the front door with his weapons at the ready, to see whether the priest would turn up, and just before daybreak, being unable to keep his eyes open any longer, he dropped off to sleep in the ground-floor room. A little before tears, he woke up to find the front door already unlocked, and pretending that he had just arrived home, he went upstairs and had his breakfast. Shortly after breakfast, he sent a young servant to his wife, disguised as the seminarist of the priest who had confessed her, to ask her whether that certain person had called upon her again. His wife, who recognised the messenger very easily, replied that he had failed to call for once, and that if he continued to absent herself, she might very well forget all about him, although she would be sorry if this were to happen. What more remains to be said? For night after night, the jealous husband lay in wait for the priest, and his wife lay in bed with her lover, till eventually, being unable to contain himself any longer, he flew into a tearing rage and demanded to know what his wife had said to the priest on the morning she had gone to confession. She told him that his question was neither fair nor proper, and refused to answer it, whereupon he exclaimed, "'Loathsome woman, whether you like it or not, I know exactly what you said to him, and I absolutely insist on knowing the name of this priest with whom you're so infatuated, and he uses magic spells to sleep with you every night. Otherwise, I shall slit your gullet.' His wife told him it was untrue that she was infatuated with the priest. "'What?' he cried. "'Isn't that what you said to the priest who confessed you?' "'As a matter of fact, I did,' said his wife. "'But I can't imagine how you came to be so well informed.' You must have been eavesdropping. Never mind about that, said her husband. Just tell me who this priest is and be quick about it. His wife began to smile and said, It's an edifying sight, I must say, when a mere woman leads an intelligent man by the nose as though she were leading a ram by its horns to the slaughter. Not that you are all that intelligent, nor ever have been since the day you allowed the evil spirit of jealousy to enter your heart without any obvious reason. 
The more thick-headed and stupid you are, the less are my achievement. Do you suppose, my dear husband, that my eyes are as defective as your reasoning? Because if so, you're greatly mistaken. I recognised my confessor from the moment I set eyes on him. I knew perfectly well it was you. I was determined to let you have what you were looking for, and I succeeded. But if you were as clever as you imagined, you would never have resorted to that sort of trick for discovering the secrets of your good little wife, nor would you have become a prey to idle suspicion, for you would have realised that she was confessing the truth to you without having sinned in the least. I told you I was in love with a priest. But is it not a fact that you, who I am misguided enough to love, had turned into a priest? I told you he could open any door in the house when he wanted to come and sleep with me. But which of the doors in your own house has ever prevented you from coming to me, no matter where I happened to be? I told you the priest slept with me every night, but haven't you always slept with me? And as you know very well, every time you sent that seminarist of yours to me, you had slept elsewhere, and so I sent you word that the priest had not been with me. How could anybody other than a man who had allowed himself to be blinded by jealousy have been witless enough not to understand all this? But in your case, what do you do? You spend me some yarn every evening about going out to supper and staying the night with friends, and hang about the house keeping an all-night vigil at the front door. Isn't it time you took yourself in hand, started behaving like a man again, and stopped allowing yourself to be made such a fool of by someone who knows you as well as I do? Leave off keeping such a strict watch over me, because I swear to God that if I were to set my heart on making you a cuckold, I should have my fling and you'd be none the wiser. And so it was that the jealous wretch, having thought himself very clever in ferreting out his wife's secret, saw that he had made an ass of himself. Without saying anything by way of reply, he began to look on his wife as a model of intelligence and virtue. And just as he had worn the mantle of the jealous husband when it was unnecessary, he cast it off completely now that his need for it was paramount. So his clever little wife, having, as it were, acquired a license to enjoy herself, no longer admitted her lover by way of the roof as though he were some kind of cat, but showed him in at the front door. And from that day forth, by proceeding with caution, she spent many an entertaining and delightful hour in his arms. Fiametta's story was marvellously pleasing to the whole company, and everyone declared that the wife had taught the stupid man a salutary lesson. But now that this tale was concluded, the king enjoined Pampanea to tell the next. Now, we're going to skip story number six, because one of the major relationships in it is coercive and unwanted, and I just don't enjoy telling those sort of stories. So we're going on to story number seven. The stratagem adopted by Madonna Isabella, as recounted by Pampanea, drew gasps of astonishment from every member of the company. But the king now called upon Philomena to follow, and she said, Lovesome ladies, unless I am much mistaken, I think I can offer you no less splendid a story, which will not take long to relate. You were to know, then, that in Paris there was once a Florentine nobleman, who on account of his straitened circumstances decided to become a merchant, in which capacity he was so successful that he made a huge fortune. His wife had borne him no more than a single child, to whom he had given the name of Lodovico, and because this child was more of a patrician's son than the son of a merchant, instead of launching him on a career in business, the father had secured him a place in the French royal household where he was brought up with other young nobles, and acquired the manners and attributes of a gentleman. One day, whilst Lodovico happened to be discussing with several other young men the rival merits of various beautiful ladies from France, England, and other parts of the world, they were joined by a number of knights who had recently returned from the Holy Sepulchre. 
and one of these latter began to maintain that of all the women he had ever seen in the numerous places he visited, he had never encountered any one so beautiful as Madonna Beatrice, the wife of Egano de Galuzzi, who lived in Bologna. Moreover, he claimed that those of his companions who, like himself, had seen the lady in Bologna, were entirely of the same opinion. Having listened to this gentleman's words, Lodovico, who had never yet fallen in love, was inflamed with such a longing to see her that he could think of nothing else, and having firmly made up his mind to go to Bologna and see this lady, and to stay there for a while as she lived up to his expectations, he gave his father to understand that he wished to go to the Holy Sepulchre, and with the greatest of difficulty obtained his permission. He therefore assumed the name of Anacino, and came to Bologna, where, as luck would have it, on the day following his arrival he saw the lady at a banquet, and discovered that her beauty was even greater than he had been led to believe. Hence he was swept completely off his feet, and resolved never to leave Bologna until he had won her love. Having given some thought to various possible ways of achieving this object, he discarded them one by one, and concluded that his only hope lay in finding employment with the lady's husband, who kept a large household of servants. He therefore sold all his horses, and arranged for his servants to be comfortably lodged, having ordered them to pretend not to know him and having struck up an acquaintance with the landlord of his inn, he explained that he would like, if possible, to enter the service of some gentleman of standing, whereupon the landlord said, "'You are exactly the kind of attendant who would appeal to a nobleman, Egano by name, who lives in this city and keeps a great many servants. He makes a point of surrounding himself with good-looking fellows like yourself. I'll mention your name to him.' The landlord was as good as his word, and by the time he had taken his leave of Egano, he had arranged for Anacino to enter his service which suited Anacino down to the ground. Now that he was living under Regano's roof, and frequently had occasion to see his lady, he began to serve his master so efficiently, and earned himself so high a place in his esteem, that Regano could do nothing without consulting him beforehand, and he placed not only his own person, but all of his affairs under Anacino's control. Now one day Regano went out hawking, leaving Anacino at home, and Madonna Beatrice, who so far knew nothing of his love for her, albeit she had often had occasion to observe his ways and had formed a very good opinion of his character, invited him to play chess with her. Anacino, wishing to make her happy, played his pieces very skilfully and allowed her to beat him, which sent the lady into transports of joy. And when the lady's attendants, who had been watching the game, had all drifted away and left them alone together, Anacino fetched an enormous sigh. The lady looked at him and said, "'What's the matter, Anacino?' Does it hurt you so much to be beaten? My lady, Anacino, replied, I sighed for a much stronger reason than that. So the lady said, Alas, if I hold any place in your affection, do tell me what it is. At the mention of the place she held in his affection, Anacino, who loved her above everything else in the whole world, heaved a second sigh, much deeper than the first, whereupon the lady pleaded with him once again to explain the reason. My lady, said Anacino, I am greatly afraid that you might be offended if I were to tell you, and for all I know you might repeat it to some other person. I shall certainly not take it amiss, said the lady, and you may rest assured that no matter what you tell me, I shan't repeat a word of it to anyone without your permission. So Anacino said, Since you give me this assurance, I shall tell you all about it. And controlling his tears with an effort, he told her who he was, the things he had heard about her, how and where he had fallen in love with her, how he had come to Bologna, and why he had entered her husband's service. Then he humbly asked her whether she could bring herself to take pity on him, 
and grant him the secret desire that burned so fiercely in his heart. But if she was unwilling to do this, he begged her to be content that he should love her and allow him to continue in her service. Ah, how singularly sweet is the blood of Bologna! How admirably you rise to the occasion in moments such as these! Sighs and tears were never to your liking. Entreaties have always moved you, and you were ever susceptible to a lover's yearnings. If only I could find words with which to commend you as you deserve, I should never grow tired of singing your praises. Whilst Anacino was speaking, the gentlewoman fixed her gaze upon him, and being fully convinced of his sincerity, she was so overcome by his protestations of love that she too began to sigh. And when her sighs had abated, she replied, Anacino, my dearest, be of good cheer. Many are those that have wooed me, and those that woo me to this day, but neither gifts nor promises nor fine words have ever succeeded in persuading me to fall in love with a single one of my admirers, whether he was a nobleman or a mighty lord or any other man. Yet within the brief space of these few words of yours you have made me feel that I belong far more to you than to myself. I consider that you have well and truly earned my love. I therefore concede it to you, and before the coming night is over I promise that it will be yours to enjoy. In order to bring this about, see that you come to my room towards midnight. I shall leave the door open. You know the side of the bed on which I sleep. Come to me there, and if I should be asleep, touch me so that I wake up, and then I shall give you the solace that you have so long desired. So that you believe what I am saying, I want to give you a kiss by way of pledge. Whereupon, throwing her arms around his neck, she gave him an amorous kiss, and Anacino did the like to her. There, for the time being, the matter rested, and Anacino, having taken his leave of the lady, went off to attend to certain duties of his, ecstatically looking forward to the coming of the night. Egano returned home from his hawking, and as soon as he had supped, feeling weary, he retired to bed. The lady soon followed his example, and as she had promised, she left the door of the bedroom ajar. Thither, at the appointed hour, Anacino came, and having crept quietly into the room and bolted the door behind him, he made his way to the side of the bed where the lady usually slept. Placing his hand on her bosom, he found that she was not asleep, for she promptly clasped his hand between both her own, and holding it tightly, she twisted and turned in the bed until she succeeded in waking Agano, to whom she said, I didn't want to say anything of this last night, because you seemed so tired, but tell me truthfully, of all the servants you have in the house, which do you regard as the finest, the most loyal, and the most deeply attached to his master? My dear, Agano replied, why do you ask such a question when you know very well that I have never had anyone I could trust so completely, or respect so profoundly, as I trust and respect Anacino. On learning that Agano had woken up, and hearing his own name being mentioned, Anacino made several attempts to withdraw his hand so that he could make good his escape, for he strongly suspected that the lady was going to give him away. But she was clasping his hand so firmly that it was impossible for him to retrieve it. I'll tell you why, said the lady, in reply to Agano's question. My own opinion of Anacino was the same as yours. I too considered him the most faithful of your servants. But he has undeceived me, for yesterday, when you were out hawking and he stayed behind, he had the impudence, thinking it a good opportunity, to propose that I should minister to his pleasures. And so that I should have no difficulty in providing you with tangible and visible evidence of all this, I gave him my consent and told him that I would go into the garden shortly after midnight and wait for him at the foot of the pine tree. I personally have no intention of going there, of course, but if you desire to know what a trustworthy servant he is, you can easily slip into one of my skirts, cover your head with a veil, and go down there to see whether he turns up, as I am certain he will. I must certainly look into this, said Agano, 
So he got out of bed, and groping around in the darkness, he struggled into one of his wife's skirts as best he could, and covered his head in a veil. Then he made his way down to the garden, and stood at the foot of the pine tree, waiting for Anacino to turn up. As soon as she heard him leaving the bedroom, the lady got up and bolted the door from the inside. After experiencing the biggest fright that he had ever had in his life, and struggling with all his might to free himself from the lady's grasp, and silently heaving a hundred thousand curses upon the lady and upon himself for loving her and trusting her, Anacino was positively overjoyed when at the end of it all he saw what she had done. As soon as the lady had returned to her bed, she urged him to strip off his clothes and get him beside her, and there they lay for quite some time together, to their mutual pleasure and delight. When the lady thought it was time for Anacino to go, she persuaded him to get up and put on his clothes, saying, "'My darling treasure, find yourself a good stout stick and go down to the garden. Make it appear that you are putting my fidelity to the test. Pretend to think that Agano is me, shower him with abuse, and give him a sound thrashing. Just think of the wonderful joy and amusement it'll bring to us both.' Apparently this is a narrative trope in French Fablio, the the joy of the husband of the joy of the cheating wife and her lover on having an opportunity to beat the husband up. I don't find it a particularly attractive trope, but that's what it is. So Anacino got up and made his way to the garden with a switch of silver willow in his hand, and just as he was approaching the pine tree, Agano, seeing him coming, stood up and came to meet him, as though with the intention of bidding him a most cordial welcome. But Anacino said, So you came after all, did you? You thought me capable of wronging my master, did you? A thousand curses upon you! And he raised his stick. On hearing this outburst and catching sight of the stick, Agano took to his heels without saying a word, being closely pursued by Anacino, who kept saying, Take that, you shameless hussy, and may God punish you as you deserve! Mark my words, I shall tell Agano of this tomorrow! Battered and bruised all over, Agano returned as fast as he could to his bedroom, and his wife asked him whether Anacino had come to the garden. Would to God that he hadn't, said Agano, for he mistook me for you, beat me black and blue with a cudgel, and addressed me by the foulest names that any wicked woman was ever called. I must say that I thought it very strange that he should have spoken to you as he did with the intention of dishonouring me. But I see now that, finding you so gay and sociable, he simply wanted to put you to the test. Then the lady said, Thanks be to God that he tested me with words and saved his deeds for you. At least it can be said that his words tried my patience less severely than his deeds tried yours. But since he is so loyal to you, we should do him honour and hold him high in our esteem. I agree with you entirely, said Agano. In view of what had happened, Agano came to the conclusion that he was blessed with the most faithful wife and the most loyal servant that any nobleman had ever possessed. And for this reason, whilst on many a future occasion they all three had a good laugh over the events of that particular night, at the same time it became far easier than it would have otherwise been for Anacino and the ladies to do the thing that brought them pleasure and delight, at any rate, for as long as Anacino chose to remain with Agano in Bologna. And with that happy ending, I will leave you for today. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.